Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey gang, this podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. As you all know, this is a business that I started to give back more to conservation. We roast premium coffee, and our coffee ships out within six hours of roasting, guaranteeing that you get the freshest coffee available at your doorstep. The kicker? We donate 10% of all of our proceeds back to conservation. You choose where the donation goes at checkout. You can check us out at SkullBrewCoffee.com. And for a limited time, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get 15% off your purchase. So let's do some good together and help protect wild places one cup at a time. Visit SkullBrewCoffee.com and pledge your support of conservation today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 109. Today I'm joined by the DIY sportsman, Garrett Prawl, and we're talking about DIY hacks for 2019. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to all of you out there. Hope everyone is doing just fine. Hope you're getting a chance to get out as long as the weather will cooperate to uh, get out and do a little bit of shed hunting. I don't remember if I mentioned this on the last podcast that I put out, but I did find, I think I did actually mention it. I found my first shed. Haven't been able to get out um, since that last uh, last outing, but am kind of eagerly waiting and anticipating my trip to Iowa this week to visit my buddy Johnny Utah. And we'll see a couple other buddies out there. We'll be hitting up the uh, the Iowa Deer Classic. Uh, so that'll be a good time. Going to do a little shed hunting and a little scouting. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday or Thursday of this week when this podcast launches, I will be in route, in flight uh, to Iowa to meet up with uh, with John. The plan really is to hit the Iowa Deer Classic. I think we're going to record a couple podcasts while we're there. If you, um, if you listen to just a few podcasts ago, we did a roundtable with John, myself, and uh, uh, Cody DeQuisto. 
and uh, Chad Sylvester, of course. And uh, I think we're going to do a round two of that. So if you have questions you would like for us to answer, um, be it hunting-related, uh, personal, life-related, funny anecdotes, or or whatever you might have, we'll be happy to uh, answer those on the podcast. So that's the plan for for this upcoming week is to do that. A couple podcasts over there, a little shed hunting, and then definitely going to do some scouting uh, of the p- couple pieces of public that I want to hit that I'm probably going to end up hunting whenever I head out there in uh, late October, early November this year. So that's really kind of the game plan for um, for this week. It's going to be they're actually having a little warmer weather, and when I say warmer weather, I'm you know uh, I guess temperature for Iowa warmer is relative. So it's in like the mid 30s uh, I think this week. But of course, when I get there, it's going to drop to the teens. So that'll make for some uh, some fun shed hunting. But uh, nonetheless, we'll power through it. Going to do a little scouting while I'm there. Hopefully, we find some good intel. Uh, we're going to hit up John, a couple of John's leases as well, and do some shed hunting there. Hopefully, I have enough bone that I pick up during the course of the trip that I'll have to uh, have to ship it back to my house. So that's the uh, that's the plan. I'm not going to hold my breath on that since I'm not the uh, the world's best. Uh, Shed hunter, but as far as like, there was one thing I wanted to make mention of on this podcast as the, as part of the upfront. Uh, it was something that actually my wife put together. Um, she's starting to make, I guess, more of an entrance into this podcast more and more recently. Um, you know, as you guys know, we have the the coffee thing going on, and then we, you know, conservation is a, an important topic I think for all hunters, and I've I've kind of taken it, um, you know, upon myself to do as much as I can possibly do, and to do, you know, to try to find ways to do more. And my wife kind of got into the fold as well. Um, and so one thing that we did just the other day, actually, as I'm recording this up front, I guess we had it yesterday, uh, was we actually threw a, and this might seem kind of um, bougie, but we actually threw a, a wine tasting party and wild game tasting. Um, and what we did essentially was, is we found this company, um, you know, I'll give them a shameless plug here, but it's called One Hope Wine Company. They're, uh, I think they're national. I think most of their stuff's out of California or Napa, but they have you know, I think regional like representatives and stuff like that, but the company's kind of built around the basis of giving back to different charitable organizations whenever they, you know, make, you know, when they sell wine essentially. So everything from, you know, children, children's hospitals to, you know, uh, help, help fund uh, research for, you know, different rare diseases and stuff like that. So overall, just an all around good company. Uh, and then they do have some, uh, you know, each bottle of wine kind of represents a, a cause, essentially. And I believe there are some that are related to the outdoors as well. So we actually hooked up with them and said, hey, why don't we throw a wine tasting party and then all the pro like a portion of the proceeds for, you know, anyone who bought wine during our party uh, goes to a nonprofit organization of our choice. And so we chose a local uh, conservancy uh, that is, you know, local to where we, to where my wife and I live, to give back to them in that regard. So that was kind of the cool part. Number number one of it, I guess, is that we were going to be able to do something kind of fun with our friends, and everyone can kind of buy some wine, have a good time, and then of course their their purchase is helping to, you know, do some good in the in the world of conservation. So that was really cool. The other cool thing that we did was, was that we paired it with the wine tasting with uh, trying different wild game, and then we purposefully kind of looked at our group of friends and tried to have like a, a, a mix of folks who are hunters, you know, or hunting enthusiasts. Um, and then also pair, you know, a groups as well, bring other groups of our friends in that are non hunters and maybe opposed to hunting or just maybe don't know much about hunting and don't understand maybe our um, relevance to conservation overall. So that was really kind of the, became the goal. Number two was let's introduce a lot of these folks who may not have a much exposure to hunting the hunting culture or wild game and use the wild game kind of tasting as a as a means to have 
you know, dialogue around it because, you know, inevitably they're going to ask questions about where it came from, who harvested it, how did it get here, so on and so forth. So, you know, what we ended up preparing was, um, of course, we had venison from a deer that I took this year. Um, we had uh, uh, some moose backstrap that we may actually made into skewers. Um, so that was by uh, from my friend Wilson, who you guys have heard on the podcast. He he and his father-in-law harvested a moose uh, in Alaska. And then we had some duck and goose as well. We made like a duck-goose confit, which is kind of bougie, I know, but it tastes really good. Um, and so that was kind of, and we had some venison sausage as well. So that was kind of the game plan. And man, I'll tell you what, it couldn't have went off any better. Um, everyone had a great time. Much wine was consumed. Uh, wine was purchased, so we were able to give it back to conservation. But more importantly, there was just all kinds of really cool discussion and conversation that was being had, you know, for the most part, Wilson and I were the two folks in the room that were hunters. So he and I fielded a lot of questions about hunting, um, about particularly where the game came from, you know, how we, how we hunted them, you know, how we processed them. Um, and there were some folks in the room who, you know, just being truthful that weren't necessarily big fans of, of hunting per se. Um, and they left with a different perspective, um, which was really cool. Like one person actually mentioned as they were leaving that, you know, they hope that, you know, folks like them who are non-hunters have an encounter with, um, have a similar encounter and experience as they had last evening, um, to get to know a little bit more about hunting and, um, you know, from, from folks who are, are passionate about it. So that was really cool. It was, you know, someone who I wouldn't have expected to, to, to say that. So I feel like we've, we've done a good job and we maybe enlightened some folks, uh, last evening to the point that they wanted to have a similar function at, at their house, um, and kind of have some hunters and some non-hunters there and have a different type of cuisine and have, um, you know, open dialogue around, around that, to- those topics as well as, you know, around vegetarianism and stuff like that. So it was just really cool because I saw a lot of people's, you know, minds kind of change. And I think the important thing, the lesson for me was, was that, um, just going into situations with an open mind and willing to learn new things, even it's, even if it's something that I'm unfamiliar with. So I'll get off my soapbox now for the moment. I just want to make mention of that because that's an easy way if anyone out there is looking to give back, um, but maybe you don't have a lot of time or whatever. This is a really easy, fun way to give back. One Hope Wine sets everything up. They bring the wine. You purchase at like a discount rate and and then you sample the wine and then whatever it is that you want to prepare for like your fair and stuff like that. So you just kind of throw a party and they show up and kind of help run it. Um, so I definitely check them out and I definitely give it a try if it's something that you're interested in. But with that, we have a cool show today. Uh, this, uh, the show today is with Garrett Prawl of DIY Sportsman. And I've wanted to have him on for a little while. Yeah, I've been you know, guilty of falling down the wormhole of his YouTube channel, looking at all kinds of different hacks for hacking gear, climbing mechanisms, you know, you name it. He's got it on his, uh, on his YouTube page as far as different ways to modify gear. And he does everything from you know, simple rope mods to, you know, the dude has built his own, his own sticks, you know, his own climbing sticks. So a uh, super knowledgeable guy when it comes to hacking and, and building DIY kind of uh, tools to get it done in the field. He's also a very mobile hunter. He's hunt, hunted, you know, from a stand and from a tree saddle. So it's like he has, you know, a perspective of both and what each hunter might want or need and what, you know, works best for him in both of those applications. So super cool to have him on. And really excited to share this podcast with you guys. But before we jump into all that, let's take care of the business end of this jam real quick and talk about a couple of our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. We're brought to you by Wicked Tree Gear, the longest, lastest, fastest cutting, toughest tree trimming equipment you have ever used. Simply put, the toughest saws on earth. How tough are they? 
tough enough to come with a lifetime warranty. And right now, when you visit wickedtreegear.com, use the promo code TRUTH at checkout and get a 20% discount on your Wicked purchase. We're also brought to you by Glacier Coolers, simply the world's finest. Whether you're hunting, camping, or fishing, you'll enjoy stronger design, smarter construction, and superior insulation of Glacier Coolers. Visit them at GlacierCoolers.com. Promo code TRUTH at checkout. Save yourself 20%. And now let's get Garrett on the line. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And I'm super stoked for today's show. My guest is none other than the DIY sportsman's Garrett Prawl. Did I say your last name right? I should have asked that before yep. we started. Yeah. Yep, that's right. I always I'm always embarrassed whenever I butcher someone's last name when we do these. <laughs> but uh but no, Garrett has a a great channel on YouTube, the DIY Sportsman's and a podcast, uh, where he looks at ways to kind of uh lighten the load per se and trying to figure out new and better ways to uh utilize gear or refine gear but uh before we get into all that thanks for joining garrett how are you doing great thanks for having me on yeah you bet man so before we get into all the nitty-gritty of the of the of the diy stuff i just want to get a little bit of background about you you know where you're from what you do professionally and kind of what your what your gig is in the whitetail world yeah so i guess my day job the job that pays the bills i do (laughs) medical device product development so that's what most of my time is consumed by. And then in kind of my free time, that's where the passions kind of come through. And it's all, you know, whitetails and turkeys and anything else I can get out in the woods and do. Right. And and you're hailing from the from the uh, from the cold state of Minnesota, right? Yep. The brutally cold state of Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. Are you Land a- of 10,000 lakes, all of which are frozen. <laughs> hey, they make good butter, though. At least I've heard they make good butter. I remember my uh, growing up, that was the butter that was always in my house was the Land of Lakes. And I never had a clue that it was actually, I just thought it was a clever name. I didn't realize, I think that it was actually made <laughs> in Minnesota. So, um, cool, man. So I, I know that, you know, we're here at the end of hunting season, right? I just wrapped mine up yesterday. It was, it was the last sit. But how was, uh, how was your season overall? I know I did see the video that you put out with your, with your Missouri hunt, which looked like it ended pretty well. Yeah, I mean, overall, I really had a great season just in terms of I was able to do a lot more traveling. To different areas and, and get new experiences than I've done in the past. So that aspect of it was really enjoyable. Nice. I ended up, uh, took three deer total throughout the entire season, two of which were does, one of which was that buck that you saw from Missouri and hunted three different states and multiple different locations within those states. So I really had a blast overall. Nice. So you had, you, had, you got plenty of timber time. I know we were talking before we started recording that, you know, timber time for us working stiffs is sometimes a, a, a challenge. I, I often say I would trade promotion for more time off in many cases, <laughs> at least for me. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, funny you say that. Cause I've been looking at various, like the next level up for me is either to get, you know, deeper into project management or to go into some type of management position. And I keep looking at those management type jobs. I'm like, do I really want that? Is that really what I want? You know, long-term. Yeah. Just cause that, that automatically just takes so much of your time away from anything else. It does. It does. It's, it's, it's interesting because you look at it and you're like, you get out of the, some of the day to day stuff, right? Which is, you know, I don't, I do plenty of day to day stuff, but I have folks who work with me that, that handle a lot of that work and that, and I manage them. So, but you're right. It does take up a lot more of your time. There is a little bit more freedom that comes along with it, right? Cause you can kind of, I don't want to say make your own schedule, but a lot of the work that I'm having to do doesn't necessarily require me to be there per se. Right. So I can kind of work from right. home. And I will take advantage of those opportunities where, say, for example, if I'm traveling, if I know I'm going to Ohio to hunt for like a weekend or whatever, I might leave Thursday after work, get to Ohio like Thursday night, wake up, hunt Friday morning, work remotely from Ohio like all day and then try to get out, cut out a little bit early and get an evening hunt in. You know what I mean? So I'm already in the state. So 
there are some perks. It's just uh, you know when you come back, there's just like an avalanche of of work all at your at your feet when you get back, which isn't any fun to take care of. But so I, I know that you you know you were part of the um, the public land challenge this year with with the guys from the Beast and uh, yourself, of course, and uh, and the uh, the hunting public crew. So I'm just kind of curious, because I know I had on um, Alex Comstock, and I know he was out for part of that gig. And I'm just yep. kind of curious to hear what different people's perspective of you know that situation was and what your overall experience was like. Yeah, I mean, for the the hunting aspect of it, it was fun to learn the new terrain i've hunted in similar terrain but that region of the state is different enough that you know the hills are bigger the terrain is steeper than some of the other bluff country i've been in and i think just overall in general there's a lot more deer and there was a lot bigger deer running around Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that they're easier uh, but it was definitely fun to go to a a region of the state like that where it's a little bit better opportunity i feel like especially in the early season than some of the other places just a lot of really really great habitat and then from the aspect of just kind of being in that group and uh, having that camaraderie, I, I thought it was a blast. I mean, the way that they title it, you know, Public Land Challenge, and there's a little bit of, you know, is it going to be kind of a competition, one team versus the other? But it really didn't feel like that at all. I mean, it was kind of like everybody was just swapping stories and sharing experiences and, you know, asking questions of each other. It was, it was really a, a great atmosphere. Yeah, I know it, it was funny you mentioned that because the, the the title was just a little little misleading because it's like you know I've had the opportunity and you know to to talk to both Dan and the guys from the Hunting Public and stuff like that and you literally cannot meet or talk to a nicer group of people you know Dan's personality is fun uh, he's interesting you know he seems kind of gruff at first until like you start to talk to him and then he's just like one of the most giving people you would ever meet in the hunting community. Um, and at first glance, you might not get that. Right. So that's kind of like the classic, don't judge a book by its cover because, um, he's, he probably wouldn't favor anyone saying this, but he's a little bit of a teddy bear. You know what I mean? Like he's got a little soft spot <laughs> for guys who want to learn, who want to learn deer hunting and, and, and stuff like that. You know what I mean? But, uh, so what was your, I'm curious, man, what was your, your biggest takeaway from hunting with that bunch of that, you know, with that group, man, because there were some, you know, just yeah. straight up killers in that group. So I'm sure there were some things that you picked up on while you were with them. So there's, I guess, two things that really stood out one was just the the level of detail and picking up the little things that a lot of those guys go into i mean a lot of guys are now up to speed where they've learned the basics they know you know what to look for in terms of bedding in terms of you know active food sources and and various terrain funnels and all that kind of stuff but what stands out to you when you hunt with a group like that is how they pick up on just the tiniest amount of things like hey this rub was made within the last couple days or that rub is a week old. I'm not paying attention to that anymore. Mm-hmm. These tracks were made this morning. These tracks could have been here for several days and really just being able to pick out what is hot absolutely right now and just, you know, staying mobile to the point where you just keep moving around and keep scouting until you find something that's hot. I mean, right. a lot of those guys also were, were just kind of running around hunting different spots every day and, and sometimes not even really putting in like a legit hunt until they found what they thought was, you know, actually worthwhile. And I think the other thing that stood out was that, you know, you would think that people who have as much experience as that group did, they would all kind of have very similar styles. And there are certainly similarities, but even within the group, every individual that would go out had their own unique way of, of doing things, their own little, little unique twist, you know, like Zach likes hunting on the ground. So that was a big right. uh, part of what they did. Zach and Jake and, and Dan pretty much, you know, stuck to what he, what he knew, 
he could be really successful at and did really well, right? So everybody kind of had their own little unique spin, which was really interesting to watch. There's kind of no best way. It's mm-hmm. kind of what you make of it. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, man, because it's like doing the, the podcasting, it's like you get to talk to a lot of folks and you you notice themes, right? And one of the big themes that I've always noticed exactly is what you said. It was like the detail in their in their scouting, right? That their ability to kind of take, you know, very what you would look at is almost like information that's easily overlooked and it becomes important to them or significant in how they're going to make a move or how they're going to set up or whatever. The other thing too, though, that I really kind of talked about, and this actually came up whenever I was talking with Zach, was just like having the confidence to when you do see something and that you know that it's important to actually act on it, right? Because that's, I think, the part that I'm still trying to <laughs> trying to get, you know, if, if I'm being 100% honest, yep. it's like I've, I'll find the right, you know, the right sign and I know what I'm looking at. But I just won't, be, you know, I don't believe the hype, so to speak, you know, and it, and it bit me this year during pre-rut where I found what I thought was a on my dad's property, which was kind of a relatively new property. I found what I thought was a, an area where one of the bucks that I was after was betting. And I found a, a primary scrape area, you know, that was just, there was a one main scrape and like four to six satellite scrapes all within like a 20 yard area and just trees tore up. And then there was a bunch of bedding behind it. And I was like, you know what? He's probably bedding here underneath a big white oak tree with acorns too. So I was like, you know, how much more choice could you get? Um, and I went to kind of do a little bit more scouting and I left that spot. And like in hindsight, like the day later, I was like, Oh my God, I was like, I can't believe I walked away from that <laughs> spot um, and ended up hanging and hunting somewhere else. And it was just like one of those things where <clears throat> I was looking at the sign going like, man, that's, that's less than 24 hours old. Some of those scrapes, cause there were still shavings on the ground and stuff like that. And, uh, I was like, man, this is the spot, and I and I left it. So I, I think a big part of it is just believing what you're seeing too, you know. And that just comes with that just comes with experience yeah. in doing it. Yeah, in in season scouting is so huge. I mean, there's been a lot of times where I've gotten sucked into how good a spot looked during postseason scouting, and it might be really good for a certain period of of time. And it might be one of those real deep spots, and you get in there, and it's like you just have the memories of all the stuff that you saw in that you know March or April scouting. And then you actually get set up and it's like, oh, I kind of expected more sign, but you end up hunting it anyway and you, you might not see anything. And it's like so much of it. You just got to you got to trust what you see then then and there. You yeah. know, yeah, 100 percent, because it's like in that scenario, I just had someone ask me that on social media. And my, my response was kind of like, yeah, I like to scout during the postseason or, you know, after the season ends, because um, I want to get a sense of like where deer have been. You know, I was like, but I think a lot of people make a mistake and they use that as almost the gospel because you don't know if that sign was laid down in September, October, November, you know, it's like, and you could be, you could either be early to the party or late to the party, depending on, you know, when that sign was laid down. Um, I think the other big thing that I took away from those dudes too, was their willingness to bump deer and not be too worried about how much they are pressuring the deer. Like they'll be concerned about the people around them and the pressure that's being created around them. But if there's a particular deer they're after, they're not worried about what's happening to the to the satellite or ancillary deer as long as that deer that they're after is not being impacted, which I thought was kind of interesting. I know Zach has mentioned if you bump a buck, he's like he doesn't want to do that, but that's the best information you'll ever get because you knew what he was doing right then and there. That's where he was at, and and bumping him one time probably doesn't move him off that spot. Right, and what I've heard also from guys that have hunted about a deer a lot is that the older a deer gets, the less likely he will relocate after getting bumped because if you bump him you know he got away it's like in his mind he won and he just confirmed even further that that betting spot that he had picked out was a good spot to be in 
Right. And now it's just a matter of figuring out how's he entering and how's he exiting. Right. And the right. Ex- the exit's usually relatively easy because that's usually the straight line path right out of their bed. You know what I mean? If it's if uh, coming out, especially if it's the evening, they're coming out probably toward a food source. You know, if it's not during the the rut, of course, which is not you know probably not going to catch embedded very often during that that time but uh but yeah man it's always good to talk to those guys because it's like you just it's like an education every time <laughs> you know and trying to like pick up the pieces I, ha- I i find myself going back and listening to those podcasts going like now what did he say here and let me write this down this time <laughs> you know so but with that man let's go ahead and dive into some of the stuff that uh you know some of the stuff that you're into man so like, the first mm-hmm. things first man it's like so i'm just gonna be honest i'm one of the probably the most you know, least mechanically inclined people you might ever meet in your life when it comes to building, building things, which is makes my wife um, nervous when I say that I'm going to DIY my hunting (laughs) gear and I'm going to be hanging from from a tree 20 feet in the air. But with that, when did you start DIY or DIY in your gear and what was the motivation behind it? So I think probably, I mean, even when I think back to like when I was a kid, like I was a big fisherman. And I would be like in my garage taking like a little piece of pine wood and like a pocket knife and trying to like whittle out like a, you know, like a fishing lure to be able to use. So I was always kind of inclined to making my own stuff. Mm-hmm. As far as hunting, probably I'd say like when I was 16 or 17 is when I really started making a lot of my own stuff. Like after the point where I had, you know, kind of made the initial purchases and then started to say like, well, I want something different. Can I save a little bit of money and just make this thing myself? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like at the beginning, a lot of it was, I can't afford whatever I want. So can I make it in some way? And right. now it's kind of evolved to, yeah, maybe I'm trying to save money, but that's not really the biggest thing. Oftentimes now, if I'm trying to DIY something, it's because maybe whatever I want doesn't exist. And so the only way to have it is to make it myself. Right. What was the, what do you think was the biggest, I guess, modification you've ever made like to, to a piece of gear where it's like you literally took it from whatever the purchase was or maybe it's something that you built from the ground up it, it ended up taking a completely different shape either than what you had initially bought or that you just developed um if you look at like my fourth arrow camera arm from when i initially got it to what it looks like now there's like only a couple components that are original <laughs> I've, I've changed so many things on that um but yeah for like the safety equipment like like tree stands and stuff there's been like minor modifications oftentimes those are i'm a little bit more leery of making like big structural changes mm-hmm. um but then like anything like strap related uh for for gear or anything like that i i really change a lot of stuff around on those type of things because they're they're pretty low risk um and so they're just fun to work with too right right now where are you coming up with like with these with these innovations i mean are you seeing are you seeing kind of like different conversations about what maybe people are looking for or is it something that you're noticing yourself or, you know, cause I know there's a lot of, um, just as I'm, you know, new first year into saddle hunting, you know, I see on the, the, the saddle hunter forum, it's just like, it's just chock full of guys who are just constantly making their own gear. And I know like saddle hunting was one of those things until, you know, recently it was, um, not something that had a lot of on market you know, pieces or in market pieces specific to saddle hunting. So it was kind of right. the nature of the, of the style, but, uh, you know, where are you coming up with some of these ideas like to, to, to start to, you know, break new ground? Yeah. So it's a mix. I mean, a lot of it, like you said, I've been involved in various forums and, and Facebook pages. Once Facebook became a thing for so long that there's constantly guys sharing stuff and sometimes seeing something new, maybe you like certain aspects of it or it sparks some new idea that says, Hey, maybe I could do that, but this way, make it a little bit different 
And I think some of the innovation that you've even seen over like the last several years, um, like especially in, in terms of saddles, like you mentioned, it's like between like five years ago and now, just a constant influx of ideas that it's like a, it's kind of like a small company working together and bouncing ideas off of one another. And, and people are able to take little bits and pieces and throw in their own little thing and, and try things and have things fail and then have things succeed. And then it's just really this whole social media age is really, I think, sparked really rapid development in a lot of those things. Yeah, for sure. Man. So, yeah. So a lot of it is just like seeing other people's ideas and just kind of making tweaks. Um, some of it too is just, you know, when you're sitting in the stand and you're thinking about stuff, it's like, oh, well, what if this thing was shaped like this <laughs> or what if it was put together this way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We often have a lot of time to sit and think. <laughs> that's for <Right>. sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's interesting. You know, it's almost like, you know, almost like a little entrepreneurial business or like a startup, like the communities are, right? Because it's just, it's constant ideation. I think that's a good way to frame it. So leads me to another question, which is, you know, have you ever, have you ever thought about like essentially doing that? Like, cause you have like the aptitude, you know, from your background, I know it's like in, in, in a form of engineering and stuff like that. Have you ever kind of considered starting to kind of build something from scratch and see, see, you know, see about taking it to market? I've thought about it a few times. Um, I think what I personally be more interested in is trying to license ideas versus actually trying to mm -hmm. make and sell something. Yeah. Um, but for me, it would have to be something that's just an absolute home run for me to have the confidence to move forward with it just because I, I do have a pretty good day job going on. Yeah. Um, so to be able to do something on the side and be able to invest a lot of money and savings into it would really take take something that I think is is high you know high confidence low risk um, right and I just I just haven't had that thing and the other thing too is like you look at what I was using five years ago and, and thought was really cool and what I use now it's like there's a constant evolution yeah so what's what's to say if I if I make something cool somebody else isn't going to come out with something in another six months that I go and and think like oh I do like that actually better than what I had before. Right. right. So I, I'm just kind of riding the wave and, and getting all these new ideas and, and trying to constantly improve. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a really valid point, man, because this space is just chock full of I mean, just, you know, going to ATA every year. It's like you see the advancement of like a product. And then like if it was a hot product the following year, there's four companies just like that that came out and then but put their own spin on it. Right. So it's a constant. Right. Um, I don't want to say it's a copycat league, but it kind of, but it kind of is, you know what I mean? Something's hot. Someone else tr tries to figure out a way that they can manufacture it, more, you know, cheaper, you know, make it better, make it a little bit different, make it more specific to a particular audience, you know, et cetera. It's kind of the whole, the whole marketing game. Kind of speaking of that, I know that we were, we were both at ATA. Um, I don't know you had a chance to sit down with, uh, with Cody and those guys from the, the lone wolf custom gear. So there's a place where they're making advancements in, in, in tree stands. Like what's your take on their overall, their overall system? So I, I like the system. I think what they what they are doing is is cutting edge again, mm -hmm. um, just in terms of how they've like back when they did the original cast aluminum, right? That was like a huge change to the market, right? And now that they're they're trying to machine stuff, and I know that like Dan is machining stuff too. It's like that's I think another really big thing that's that's going to be a not just a change for um, their products in particular, but it could be a trend in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, we, we've seen, you know, how many times over the last several years somebody's come out with something that is really high priced and people are like, oh, nobody's going to pay for that. Okay. Like with, you know, like Yeti or Sika or something. But time and time again, people prove that they're willing to pay for something that they think is the best. Yeah. Um, so I, I think they definitely have something there. It'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years how other people try to, you know, mimic or copy or, or do whatever. 
I do think that it is high enough price that it's going to cut a lot of people out just right off the bat. Yeah. But having held some of that stuff in my hand and looking at some of the ideas that went into it, you know, I was talking with Cody and he said that was like the stand that they had at ATA was like the 14th prototype that wow. they had machined and done changes to it, trying to make little tweaks every time. Um, so they definitely, you know, you don't always see like bits and pieces. They're not posting, you know, stuff on social media like, oh, we're working on this. But it's like in the background, you get the feeling that those guys are always, always tweaking and always doing stuff just kind of in the in the shadows until they, they feel like they have something that's that's, you know, really next level. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's definitely cool. It's definitely cool stuff. You know, for me, it's I don't for me, I guess I look at it like this and just this is this is just my lens where. If I'm focused and I am on hunting as as light and as mobile as I can, and I pretty much hunt for the most part, I have some family properties and stuff like that. But I think this year in total, out of all the hunts I did, I did three sits on the family property. And even there, it's three plus hours away. So even there, it's like I'm not hanging stands and letting them. It's like every stand or every sit is a hang and a hunt. Um, and if I'm doing that, it's like I just have a hard time fathoming like a better way to do it than hunting out of a saddle because it's the lightest, the most mobile there's no restrictions with trees or diameter of trees for the most part, as long as it'll hold your body weight, you're like, you're pretty, you're pretty good to go. The sticks were intriguing, um, intriguing to me, but I look at it like you're doing this innovation in this space. And I think it's great. And I think, I think it is innovative. I, that, I mean, the stuff is super light. I, I think what they did to kind of make the sticks more packable was just, was really, was really cool. And that was the one place where I was like, the sticks would be something that I would, I would look at as a potential climbing method. Mm-hmm. But with that mobile community being so, you know, DIY, right. Always kind of looking to shave an ounce, shave a pound, shave a bulk or whatever. It's like, I I mean, I already started seeing posts on social media where people were figuring out like how to, how to remake that, the seat that flips up to carry a pack, you know what I mean? Like they're already kind of hacking those things. And so I'm looking at it going, I think those are great things, but when you innovate like that, you're really kind of innovating for like that. You're and knowing that your audience is kind of that DIY audience too, it's like how many of them are just going to say, "Oh, instead of paying this, I'm just going to hack this because I can do, I can make this work this way." You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it, you definitely take a risk there. Um, I think that too. There's always going to be, you know, like of course we got the small little niche community that loves like DIY and stuff, like mm-hmm. all the pictures you see that pop up with like recreating what they saw at ATA and stuff. I think that's awesome. Um, but I think there's also another large group that just like you said is not mechanically inclined mm-hmm. and i think that group is bigger than sometimes we imagine because they're the guys who aren't posting yeah on social media um so i think there's still going to be those people that would rather just buy something than than actually make it right but how how many of those people are there i really don't know yeah. and and i think too one of the things that's going to be hard for people to recreate is just the strength mm-hmm. to weight increase that you're able to get with machining versus uh like a cast stand yeah. Like if you were to chop up some other cast stand, like a lone wolf, you know, original or something like that, like there's only so much you can do without, you know, making some safety compromises. Right. Right. And yeah. It, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it, uh, how it all unfolds. I mean, I thought it was a, a, a super cool piece and, and there's definitely going to be people out there that want to, that want to pick them up. Um, you know, I have, I have no doubt that, that, that that'll be the case. I think the, the way that they're kind of framing it too is the right approach. Cause I heard Andre, you know, a couple of times while I was standing there where he was saying that, you know, he mentioned someone asked how much they were and he mentioned the price point and, and he was like, Look, he's like, the person who's buying this isn't buying three or four to hang around their farm. They're buying right. one and this should last them the next like probably the entire the rest of their their years hunting, essentially. You know what I mean? So if you look at it from that perspective as an investment, it's like 
you know, and you're going to use something for 10 to 20 years, it's like, is 800 bucks for a setup really all that much? Probably not. You know what I mean? All, all things considered, but it's that initial sticker shock and outlay of cash. Right. Which is right. There definitely is that. I mean, to put it in reference, though, like my Lone Wolf Assault that I have, I bought that thing in like 05. Mm-hmm. So I've been using that thing for 14 years now. Yeah. Exactly. So you definitely got your return on investment. <laughs> right. <laughs> With that. Awesome. So I'm, I'm curious, man, as you're, as you're kind of, you know, tweaking things and, and, and making things anew and making things that weren't before, you know, what type of testing are you doing on, on something that you've kind of modified before you actually take it out and do, do a hunt with it? Especially if it's something that's going to be, you know, like safety critical, I guess is one way to put yeah. it. Yeah. So if it's, if it's something that's safety related, before I even do the mod as much as possible, I like to actually run through the numbers and do the math or do like the finite element analysis to see if it's if it's going to be sketchy or not. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the one of the advantages that having a background in, in engineering gives you is just the ability to look at something and know kind of uh, through experience what looks like it. You'll be able to tell what things will work and won't work just by how the stresses are going to be you know, located and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that definitely helps in the front end in terms of like not just, it reduces the number of failures you have to go through to get to the right spot. Um, so oftentimes I'll do that just on the front end before I even start building. But once I actually build something and I, I want to test it out, usually what I'll do is I'll just take it to the backyard and try it at ground level mm-hmm. and just kind of put it through the paces, put it on various size trees, got some angled trees that I'll, I'll test stuff on and just try to see, you know, if somebody my weight if it's going to be, if there's flex, uh, if there's, you know, any kind of issues, I'll take, if it's like a climbing stick mod, I'll take the stick apart after, you know, standing and, and bouncing around on it to see if anything bent or if there's, you know, any kind of warping or anything like that. Um, definitely safety related things. It pays to, in my opinion, you know, do the, as much due diligence as possible on the front end before you actually take it up to 20 feet. Yeah, it could definitely get a little. I like how you mentioned sketch. Like I don't remember what the terminology is you just use for for assessing it, but I would call that the the sketch variable in my book. That's <laughs> what it would be called. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you know, growing up, you know, as yeah, <laughs> growing, sure. growing up hunting, I think we've all kind of done stepped on some sketch stands in the past. Where it's like I look at them now and I'm like, man, there's no way you'd get me into that stand today, <laughs> you know. And then, and then you have my old man, of course. He's like, "Oh, that stand looks fine." I'm like, "Dad, those cables are rusted. Like they're ready to <laughs> they're ready to break <laughs> yeah. like at any moment." He's like, "Oh, it's good. It'll be fine." Um, so, what's the one area of hunting gear that you think you know when you look out there across the the great sea of of hunting gear? You know, stands, sticks, saddles. You know, whatever the case might be, bows, releases. You know, what's the one place where you see, you know, that I guess gear that could use the most innovation currently? Yeah, I, I think that probably the biggest thing is just anything that involves electronics at this point. Hmm. I mean, we've we've gotten to the point where clothing has gone through the paces, and now we have high-tech clothing that's mm-hmm. really good, way better than we, what we had years ago. The, the mobile systems, tree stands, climbing sticks, saddles, over the last five years have gotten have kind of gone are going through those paces. I think over the next few years, they're going to continue to, to really get optimized. Like we have seen with clothing, mm-hmm. um, any, like the mapping softwares and stuff like Onyx and, Man, and anything yeah. like that. What a game changer that kind of stuff has been. Yeah. Um, I think like as, as far as mapping is concerned, the only way to really get better than what we have now is to be able to like utilize like drones, which I think are, are outlawed in many places 
uh, even during the hunting season. Um, but like, that's really the only way you can do any better than what we have with like Onyx or, or anything else like that. But just being able to look at various aerial photos from various times of the year from various sources and be able to kind of analyze those and, you know, look at 3D views, look at topo lines overlaid on aerials, um, overlaid with private land boundaries. It's just been a game changer for how you're able to gather info on the front end. And once you actually put boots in the ground, go back and look at it again and see how the big picture works together. I think the biggest thing is, is just, um, things like trail cameras, Mm -hmm. right? Like it seems like with trail cameras, you you have to pay for quality or if you try and skimp on quality, like the, the reliability just isn't always there. Yeah. Um, so that's like a big thing for me is like, when are we going to get to the point where you can buy, you know, a sub hundred dollar trail camera or a sub $200 cell camera and actually like have really good reliability with those type of cameras. Um, that would be something I, I think it'll probably get there over time, but in my opinion, it's still not really quite there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the thing that is, is it, it, those things oftentimes move at a pace of what I'll just call like normal consumer products, right? Because we're really borrowing technology. You know, if we're, if we're talking a cell camera, we're borrowing technology from, you know, cameras, we're borrowing the camera industry. We're borrowing technology from, uh, the cell, you know, cellular companies and stuff like that. So it's like, as they evolve and advance, you know, those industries are able to evolve and advance because, you know, I'm not saying anything. I don't think that you don't already know, but it's like, you know, those, the hunting industry, uh, innovative companies don't have aren't flush with cash to the point to do their own r&d right it's like they have to rely on kind of consumer products that have you know the that make 400 million dollars a year a billion dollars a year or whatever to see what they're going to invest in and how can you then start to leverage those you know innovations and those changes right so it's always kind of we always get kind of the trickle down effect i guess is what i'm saying in the hunting industry um you bring up like the the technology piece right and when i say technology yep. i'll say digital specifically because te- you know technology doesn't always have to be digital um yep. you know how much how far do you think where's i'll ask it this way where do you think in your mind is the line of fair chase given all the stuff that we have at our disposal like you know we have the maps right that we can take a look at aerial you know information and topo lines and we can get weather data and all that stuff we have trail cameras yep. we can see moon phase wind direction barometer along with the deer's video to understand which way they're coming from and at what time of day, you know, like it's cell cameras, which can give you a ping and let you know when a deer passed a a certain point, you know, so feasibly it's like, if you know, he beds over here and he's got to pass this area, it's like, you could get that ping and know he's 500 yards away from his bed. And you, maybe you're in a position where you can get there within the time it takes him to go 500 yards. You know, I don't know. know, So at, at what point are we kind of passing that point of fair chase in your mind? It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans, after all, it's only pressure, you got this, Adidas. Yeah, so I mean, I think on an individual level. If you think it's kind of sketchy, then it is not fair chase <laughs> right. for you as an individual, right? Like right. if some if some guy thinks that even just like a, a regular old, you know, plain Jane trail camera gives him too much of an advantage, then, you know, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think kind of on the macro scale and a little bit bigger level, I think we just need to, I'm always a little bit leery of in-season technology, right? Mm-hmm. Like out-of-season technology to be able to learn the landscape, learn that those type of things, like 
I don't know. I, I personally don't don't care like what people use. Right. Um, but like in season where you're able to get live information that could really give you a, a big advantage, I think we just kind of have to look at it in terms of how it's affecting our overall harvest rates and say, hey, if if since this technology has really gone mainstream, success percentages have gone up by X number of percent. Maybe we need to look at limiting this technology um, or else we, we have the flip side effect where they have to start reducing availability of tags or, or that type of thing. Right. Um, so I, I think it would make sense to kind of look at it as objectively as we can and, and kind of look at the numbers to see what what is too big of an advantage and what is not. You know, if if, if people assume that something's going to be too big of an advantage, but really there's no effect on success, mm-hmm. then maybe it isn't as big of an advantage as we previously would have assumed it would have been. You know. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I, that you bring up the, the harvest numbers because I just kind of took a sneak peek through the most recent uh, QDMA whitetail report just out of curiosity. And I always kind of like focus on my home state and stuff like that because I want to see what's going on. But over the past, I think that looks at it from a three-year like window and the harvest numbers for, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old bucks or three-and-a-half-year-old bucks or whatever, like they're all pretty all pretty similar as far as like the overall like aggregate, you know, data, which is interesting knowing that we've had significant technology advances just in the past three years. I'm always kind of torn, man, because I I 100% agree with you where it's like I don't necessarily want it to get to a point to where it's affecting in-season, you know, hunts, which, you know, which totally makes sense. But even like if you look at Montana, it's like they used to have a no trail camera policy in season during like in September once elk season hit. And I think just this past year, maybe two years ago, they've removed that to where you can now run trail cameras during, you know, in season. So even those states who are looked at as being like the staples of fair chase, so to say, right? Um, yeah. Or 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 their economy is, you know, I won't say based, but they have a large portion of their economy is based on their wildlife and natural resources or even still moving away from it. And the, and the part that I kind of struggle to kind of balance is that I want it to be as fair as possible. Right. But if we look at hunting on the whole and knowing that our hunting numbers are dwindling, like what do we have to do to entice those who maybe aren't as skilled, don't have enough time to develop the skill, right, to dedicate to it, but we want them to be involved in the hunting culture because they're an important part of it to, you know, increase our numbers and make sure that the the the, the, the lifestyle stays viable and so forth. And if technology and, and loosening the reins on quote-unquote fair chase is how you do it, like, it's like I'm, I'm torn between, like, I don't... <laughs> I'm torn between the old man saying, get off my lawn <laughs> and the... <laughs> And the, and the rational person going like, if it can help people get into the funnel and continue to enjoy the thing that we have, then I have less of a problem with it. So I'm just, what do you, what do you think of that, that kind of perspective? No, I, I think it's a good way to, to look at it. There's no easy answer. Yeah. Right. It's like, if we try and make it as old school as, as possible and try and outlaw as much technology as we can to keep it most fair chase, that might become less and less appealing to the newer generations. Um, and, and hunting may eventually lose, um, the kind of you know political poll that it even currently has so i think that yeah it's, it's tough i don't know what the right answer is um yeah, yeah I, th- I don't I, know yeah i know, <laughs> it, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult question yeah i think it's just at this point use use responsibly right and and one of the ways maybe is you know these you know, like the record books or whatever whether it's you know boone and crockett po- boone and crockett pope and young whatever it's like you know maybe they start to put some regulations in and around like how something is harvested and what type of, you know, tools are being used. And I mean, the trail camera thing would be hard to like, 
would be hard to enforce or regulate because you wouldn't know whether someone had pictures of them beforehand or not, or if they were on a cell camera or not. But, you know, maybe it starts at that level and you start to figure out how to implement it in in other ways. And maybe that's kind of like a testing ground. I don't know, but you're right. It is kind of a loaded, a loaded topic, right? Because it's like, you don't want to cut your nose off to spite your face, but you also don't want to, um, you also don't want to be disrespectful to the the animal and the hunt overall. Right. Well, the, the other thing to look at it too is like, I don't know how many millions of dollars the hunting industry is worth um, in terms of like the gear and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, you don't need much to be able to have a successful hunt. If, if people, you know, use just like generic clothes, use the same bow for 10 years, like all this kind of stuff and just not putting that many dollars into the industry. At what point does that hurt the industry enough where it starts to die down enough? And again, you're losing the kind of that political power. So that's an, kind of another way to, yeah to look at the problem yeah it's a it's multifaceted maybe it helps us to keep spending money yeah Yeah. (laughs) exactly it's multifaceted (laughs) probably above my pay grade at this point but (laughs) it's 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 interesting to talk about so you know what are your so i've i think i mentioned this before we started recording but it's like i've i've fallen down the rabbit hole of your of your youtube channel for hours on end (laughs) looking through all kinds of diy hacks for any assortment of things, some things that I'll probably never do, but I just continue to watch it out of just, you know, like, how is he going to do this? Or what is this next, you know, you know, hack consist of? So what are your, I guess your top or your favorite saddle hunting, you know, DIY hacks, since that's like the thing that I'm most interested in. Yeah. So I think for one of the big things over the last couple of years has been the advent of people figuring out you can use the senders for Lyman's belts. Mm-hmm. Um, the rope man one is the one I currently use that has been just a, a total game changer for me and how I'm able to utilize that lineman's rope to be able to climb the tree. And there are other options for doing that kind of one-handed adjustment for the, the lineman's rope. Uh, guys in the, the tree climbing community, arborists, they have more rope-like methods mm-hmm. uh, where you're able to still use kind of that, that rope hitch and just kind of have like a tender to be able to lift against the hitch so you don't have to use that all-mechanical device. So there's other ways of doing it. Um, but it just seems like everything I've tried that just the simple, small, non-bulky mechanical sender seems to work really well. Um, for just carrying gear, so like part of it, you just got to think about like not only what gear you're carrying, but also how you're using it and what the process is for climbing the tree, hunting out of the tree, getting back down. You know, for the longest time, I've always just kind of had one of those hip belt pouches that you can get for any kind of just random like frame pack mm-hmm. and just put it on the front of the the waist belt of the saddle and then i'm just able to use that pouch to carry like essentials like uh anything i would want to have at easy reach and not have to go into a pack to get like utility hook like you climb the tree and then you get to the point where you're ready to hang your stuff like just having that utility hook right at your the front of your hip where you're able to just undo a zipper grab that thing strap it around the tree then you can take your pack off and you got someplace to hang it mm-hmm. um just doing something like that has has been helpful in the overall process. Being able to carry sticks up the tree, one of the things that I added to my saddles are just like little plastic hooks, uh, like you could buy at any like a backpacking store like REI or even like a like a fleet farm type of place. You can usually find just those little cheap plastic hooks, um, just break the the little gates off of them, and then I just used zip ties to connect them to the mesh on the saddle. And then that little hook serves as a place where I can hang my sticks from with a piece of like small paracord or something like that. So that when I climb up the tree, I'm able to have a, 
a climbing stick at my my hip level so i can make one trip up the tree and i don't have to kind of go back down and get stick number three and four that's awesome because that's actually one of my biggest pet peeves i have yet to figure out (laughs) how to make happen seamlessly is the just even whenever before i started saddle hunting even with a tree stand it was like that was always the biggest pain was trying to figure out how i'm going to effectively get my sticks up and me up the tree at the same time without like having a bunch of crap just kind of like stuck to me from just odd places you know what i mean i tried like everything imaginable to tying it off to my to my harness to like you know tying it to anything that i was taking up with me tying it to like a whatever the case was right i was just there was a bunch of different ways and every one of them was either noisy or i ended up dropping it like that was always like the, the, (laughs) the, the two fails um i never thought of doing that but so have you found that to be pretty effective Oh yeah, works great. Um, and those plastic hooks, like that's one way to do it. There's also another thing that I learned from John Reed, who has JX3 Outdoors. He's the mm-hmm. the owner of that. Mm-hmm. On his uh, hybrid saddle, he has these little multi-purpose D-ring locking hanging hooks. I believe they're called on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, he has you know the same type of Molly system where you're able to kind of it's it's modular enough where you can take any of the kind of Molly accessories that already exist in the world and adapt them to the, the saddle or the harness. And those little plastic things, you, you can mate them perfectly to the molly loops that a lot of these saddles have. And then that also allows you to have either a closed or an open hook. Hmm. So if you're afraid of like losing something, um, you can actually close that hook up in the shape like a D. Hmm. Uh, or you can have it open the way he actually had it on his system was he had two of them side by side. And if you had them opened up on one side of your hip, you could actually hang your bow from it from the string. And then oh, wow. your bow is just kind of hanging from your hip, and then you don't have to reach up to grab your bow. It's just right at hip level, and it's nice, easy to get to. Um, or you could use something like that for hanging your sticks or hanging any other piece of gear, and you can close it up. Uh, I used them also for daisy chaining up my tether and my lima's rope mm-hmm. and just putting them in the hooks and closing them up. You don't have to worry about losing them. Just another alternative to using something like a dump pouch or a sis holler or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's some uh, good information for me because <laughs> those are literally the things I've been kind of trying to figure out here toward the toward the end of the year after a full season of being in the in the saddle. It's like I started figuring out things that don't work, things that do work, and that was kind of like my next step was to is to try to really try to streamline my approach because the thing is is too is like it's all it's all in your process and your setup too, right? It's like once you get a system down, you have things where you need them to be when you need them to be there. It just makes it that much, you know, easier and you become that much more quiet and then the, the hunting style becomes that much more effective. But the other part that I'm kind of fooling with now, and this is the part that I was saying that my wife isn't super thrilled about me getting getting my DIY on with certain things because I'm, I'm going to change up my climbing method this year. So I'm curious from you, what is your favorite climbing method? Be it, you know, we can talk about it from a saddle perspective, but then also a tree stand perspective. What, what, what approach yep. do you prefer? Well, for me, it's the same saddle versus tree stand. So that'll be easy. My favorite for climbing is a climbing stick that has roughly 24 or 25 inch length, double step, and just two step. So like the sticks that I made or like Dan Infault sticks, along with a movable aider. That is kind of my favorite overall climbing system that I've sort of settled on. Um, It locks to the tree nice. You got good stability. You can use it on various different tree types, leaning trees. Um, and just having the the one loop aider allows you to sort of move it up as you go. So you're not in kind of a position where if you have too many steps on an aider, I feel like it, it almost, for me anyway, reduces your ability to stay stable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because like last year I tried the five step eater and it worked fine, but you get to some of those trees where just you get into goofy situations with how they were leaning or something and you just didn't, the sketch factor was a little bit higher. Right. <laughs> um, so, so having, having the one loop eater is kind of like a nice, a nice in between for me uh, where I've kind of settled on. Um, and then you're able to move that up as you go so that by the time you actually get up to hunting height, you don't have an eater loop hanging off of each of your stick kind of swaying around in the wind. Mm-hmm. Um, so that overall system, usually for me, three sticks, I'd say is probably 80% of what I would do. If I know I only need like one or two sticks, that's all I'll bring. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm just going in blind, usually three. And if I know I would need four, then I'll bring four. But I'd say three sticks with the one, uh, one step movable eight is probably my, my go-to. Okay. If I want to, if I know I'm going to be in a situation where it's really tough to walk or I want to kayak in or something like that, then I oftentimes we'll go to like the wild edge steps with an aider method just because it can fit them inside of my pack so there's a lot less risk of like catching on you know like buckthorn or something else you might be trying to bushwhack through um it's just a lower overall profile right that's interesting so the so three sticks how how heavy are your sticks just out of curiosity uh they're they're a hair under two pounds probably like one pound 10 ounces i think or one pound 12 ounces somewhere in there with the rope and the style strips and all that kind of stuff okay and so you're using a one step movable eater what's the spacing between your between sticks um between sticks well with the two-step eaters i know it was it was eight feet um for each new step each new stick that I would put on would give me an additional eight feet with the two-step aider. Hmm. So the one-step aider, it's probably probably closer to like six and a half. Okay. In terms of like, you know, six and a half foot if you're using one stick, uh, thirteen feet for two sticks, mm-hmm. nineteen and a half for three. Okay. What uh? And so when you're using a one-step, you're using an actual one-step aider and and not a nader, correct? Yeah. Okay interesting because my thought process for me this year was i was going to actually try what you were talking about which you this which you suggested the sketch factor was a little a little high which was the you know i'm planning to use wild edge steps with a five-step aider and in and a nader that way i can kind of mm-hmm. clip on to the to the next you know step pull out pull the uh the aider off and clip it to my belt or clip it to my you know yep my saddle and then step on top of the step you know and bring my aider up with me and then clip it you know put up another step and then clip the aider to the next step so but what you're saying is like I, I you know i totally get what you're saying i was talking to greg about this and he was mentioning it too he was like you know when you get trees that are a little squirrely he was like then you don't have a place to dig your toe into the side of the tree to give you that stability and i was just thinking about that as well where it's like when you have your lineman's belt on and you're trying to use both hands it's like you kind of almost have to have your hands on the tree to kind of keep yourself steady you know as you're climbing it seems like but uh so yeah. yeah i mean and some of the some of the, the challenges come with like if you're trying to use any of those methods some of them require you to climb above your your top handhold mm-hmm. and True. anytime you have to do that it becomes a little bit riskier yeah whereas i feel like with the climbing stick you you pretty much you're able to have something solid the whole way up um even because like if i'm using just a one-step aider i'm able to climb so that my feet are on the bottom uh step of the stick and then I can almost even just wrap my knees around the top step. And then I'm able to, from that position, reach and put my next stick up as high as I can reach mm-hmm. and just kind of go on from there. And it seems to work pretty well. It's pretty stable. Right. I might have to give that a try because I wasn't really, I had considered the two-step uh, stick, but was kind of leaning from it because I'm just trying to make my pack as light as possible because I'm trying to get us into a smaller pack. 
Um, gotcha. Which has been kind of driving me a little bit crazy, um, which was kind of what the, I guess the, the genesis for wanting to change the, my climbing style in general. Cause right now I was just using lone wolf sticks, which are a little heavy. You know what I mean? I have rope mods on them and stuff like that, but they are, you know, I think they're two pounds without, without, you know, any of the straps on them. Then you add the rope mods to them. They're still just a little over two pounds. So I was hoping to shave, shave some of that weight off just to make my pack a little lighter and so I could reduce the pack size. But for, so for my, uh, I guess for my, diving into my nader development <laughs> since the wife yep. is, thinks this has a high sketch factor any tips for uh any tips for building one of those uh as have you, do you have any sewing experience uh so my sewing experience comes from seventh grade whenever i had to, when we all had to take a home economics class that's the extent of my sewing experience gotcha so not, um, not high I don't, I don't have any major uh tips other than just following the instructions that other people have have used to put them together. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just say make sure that you're good using, you know, like high quality thread, like yep. not just cheap, you know, cotton thread or whatever is yep. is whatever you can get at Walmart. Make sure you're using something that's made for, um, made for gear, made for you know tying together webbing and that type of thing, um, as kind of a minimum. Yeah. So I think I, what I ended up picking up was uh, I think Greg recommended polyester upholstery thread. I think is what he was recommending for me to use. Um, so I'm going to give, I'm going to give that a whirl and I have some tubular webbing that I picked up and then I'm actually going to use the hook from your lone wolf, uh, I guess, hang set where you can kind of hang the hook in the tree and then you have Mm. like, it's always set there. So I'm going to use that for the top piece of it to kind of clip onto the step. So I'm hoping that those, uh, I'm hoping that those few pieces will, will, will do me good and that my sewing holds up. That's the only part that I'm like questioning is my sewing capabilities. And, and, <laughs> and I like how Greg says that like, it's not sewing whenever you're doing it with saddle hunting, it's injecting, it's injecting thread. Yeah. <laughs> makes it just seem a little more manly, I guess. But, uh, so now that we've, you know, we got our climbing method kind of pulled together, right. And we're figuring out how we're getting into the tree and stuff. You know, do you have any, do you have any tips or DIY ways of like building, you know, gear hangers or to get things, you know, into the tree without necessarily, you know, using screw-ins just because, you know, on public land, a lot of places you're not able to use screw-ins. So, you know, what are you doing in those cases? Yeah. So I've done a a few various like DIY methods of hanging gear, but then they ended up HME came out with a little utility belt Mm -hmm. that actually works pretty well. It's like eight bucks or something at Fleet Farm. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a cam buckle strap that has up to five injection molded uh, little J-shaped hooks that go onto it. And I usually just keep two hooks on, one for my bow, one for my pack. And I put that thing just about as high as I can reach. And the only change that I've made to it is instead of just having that normal cam buckle strap where you have to thread the tag end of the webbing through it and then cinch it tight, I went ahead and sewed a flat hook Hmm. onto the end of one of the webbings. And then I just use that uh, that cam buckle. It's kind of a sliding piece, sliding component. So then that way I'm able to just kind of loop the flat hook into the end of that cam buckle and then pull the, tr- the strap tight as opposed to having to feed the whole length of webbing through. Mm-hmm. So that's just been a little minor thing. It requires a little bit of sewing, but again, it's like low-risk sewing because it's not something that's... Um, holding up your body weight right right yeah as, as, as opposed to my highly sketch sewing factor <laughs> that i'm going to embark on <laughs> the uh th- that's interesting i started using something similar to i don't know if it's the same brand these are these are metal hooks i believe and i just I, I soundproofed them all and it's actually been a game changer for me but i actually use a i think i actually picked this up from you if i'm not mistaken 
but I actually make a uh, another tether out of some 550 cord with like a small prosica on it, and that's and then I have my pack, which will have a uh, um, a carabiner on it, and I'll just use that to kind of hang on that small self-made tether. That way, I can kind of move my pack up to like my height. That way, when I'm getting my stuff out, when I first get in the tree, it's there. And then once I get everything out, I just I just take it and I slide it down because I usually like my pack to hang down around like my knee. That way, it's not in the way for me to take you know, to get a shot around the tree in the saddle. So that's kind of like the little hack that that's the extent of my hack my hacking ability i guess is i made a fake little tether yeah well if, if i if i figure out a way that i'm satisfied with to eliminate a camera arm then i might not even climb up the tree with my pack i may just leave it at the base of the tree and just use it solely as a means of carrying in my climbing method and carrying in any extra clothes and then packing out a deer potentially and then i'll be able to have a lot more exposed and open you know kind of system up in the tree and more freedom of movement yeah that would be uh that would be choice i've had stuff at the base of the tree but it's typically been because it's fallen out at some point during the <laughs> during the hunt so that's been my my methodology for keeping things at the base of the tree um what uh i want to move to packs here because as i was saying like that's probably like one of the places that's one of my biggest pain points at this point um is just the size of the pack that i'm using because of the stuff that i'm carrying so what you know what pack have you found that works best for saddle hunting and then is there anything that you found that that you like particularly for for stand hunting yeah so for saddle hunting kind of the two packs that i've, I've used and seem to work pretty well one is the mystery ranch pop-up pack they come in two sizes an 18 liter or a 28 liter 28 seems to be more popular mm-hmm. uh, you can carry more clothes or just more overall gear in it the 18 is usually enough for kind of a minimalist hunter if you're fine putting your clothing in the load shelf each of those packs are also, you can, so the idea behind that pop-up pack is that you have a nice, small, kind of minimalist-looking day pack size, but then if you want to be able to haul heavier loads, you can adjust a couple of the straps, uh, kind of peel away the top end of the pack from the frame, and then kind of extend or pull up some additional load lifters uh, to be able to then use that pack as a load shelf, and you can carry up to you know around 75 pounds or so um, be able to, to haul that load in addition to the, the small day pack. Uh, so it makes it nice from that aspect. If you do want to be able to carry a deer out, otherwise like a more minimal style pack is going to be fine if you don't need that ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Cabela's elite scout 1800 pack, I used that one quite a bit mm-hmm. over the last year and it works really just, uh, just fine for being able to carry just kind of your essentials and your necessities for being able to carry the sticks, what I would typically do, no matter what type of pack it is, is I'll just kind of lay them sideways on the outside of the pack and then either use the um, the straps on the outside of the pack or use night eyes gear ties to just kind of hold them in place. And I really haven't had any issues in doing that with the, the stick sliding around or making noise or anything like that or hitting me in the back of the head. Right. Yeah, that's a uh, that was kind of how I was carrying my sticks this year. It was on the outside of an Alps pack, but it was just it was more of a full Western full western yeah. pack which was just getting into a tree with it was just kind of a pain it was just it was just too big so i need something that's just a little smaller than that um do you, now you were saying you put your sticks on the outside I, did i see did, did you at one point make a video where you also carry them on the inside of it by kind of like clipping them together with some night eyes just to kind of keep them tight in there so they're not moving around or was that something else I was yeah i think i did i mean there's there's a bunch of different ways of skinning the cat you can you can kind of carry them inside and then 
zip up the zipper so the zipper's like 90% closed and it's just kind of the sticks that are poking out the top. Right. That's one way of doing it. I found that after doing it a whole bunch, I typically like just putting the camera gear and like mm-hmm. an extra like fleece or something like that inside the pack mm-hmm. and then just putting the sticks on the outside because once you get to the base of the tree, the first thing you do is take your sticks off. So if they're on the outside, you don't have to move anything else around. Right. Right. So speaking of camera gear, any uh, any any self-filming tips for, for some DIY hacks for self-filming? Because I, I go back and forth with this where it's like sometimes I take a camera, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I really like it. Sometimes the camera just makes me angry. So I end up leaving it at yeah. home, you know? Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, anything camera arm related, whether it's a stand or it's a saddle, definitely makes life a little bit tougher. So, I mean, what I've typically done is I'll have that camera arm and just I usually modify whatever arm segments come with the camera arm like with my fourth arrow one i made a a custom arm that was two segment and the top segment was a few inches shorter than the bottom segment so that allows me to not have the the shotgun mic hit the tree Hmm. when i'm passing the arm from one side to the other kind of underneath the bridge that's one that if you're saddle hunting will make life a little bit easier Uh, but beyond that i mean the, the biggest thing and if you saw my videos last year you noticed that a lot of the the actual shot footage that I had was from the head cam. Mm-hmm. And some of that was unintentional where I just, you know, I wanted to have either the, the main camera was out of focus or the aim was a little bit off or, or something like that where I didn't really have great footage with that main camera arm and the, the head cam sort of saved the day. So that kind of got me thinking, well, if I can get a better head cam set up, I might just be able to ditch the camera arm. So that's kind of been one of my pet projects over the last few months and even probably leading up into next season will be, can I get a really decent quality setup with being able to ditch the camera arm, ditch all of the inconveniences that come with setting up a camera arm, um, and be able to utilize the saddle to its fullest potential in terms of being able to move around the tree. Right, and how how's that coming? Because I did notice that actually in your videos, yeah. and I was like, so what's that? What is that setup for your head cam? Well, so what I did last year is I had a Sony FDR X three thousand which is their latest action camera. It's, it's actually a couple of years old. They haven't really come out with a, a new model of it yet, but it has pretty decent um, image stabilization. It's a little bit better. It's, it's not quite all just electronic image stabilization. There's actually like a, a small amount of mechanical stabilization that's going along with it. Hmm. And with that setup, since it's filming in 4K, you can have it zoomed out all the way and it looks like a good third person camera view, like a, like what you think of with a GoPro or something like that. Right. You're able to kind of see what you're doing. Uh, but then since it's also 4k, you can crop in a little bit and still have pretty decent looking footage. Right. So you're kind of able to bounce back and forth between kind of that big wide third, you know, first person view and a little bit tighter cropped view where you're able to get a little bit better footage of the shot or anything else you might be looking at. It's still not going to be as good as like zooming in, with an actual optical zoom on a, a camcorder that's set on a camera arm. So you're losing out for sure on anything that's further away. But for like the close-up stuff inside of 20 yards, it seems to work pretty decent. And what I'm probably going to move to is something like a, something with a little bit tighter field of view, like mm-hmm. the Osmo Pocket that they just came out with. Okay. That one's got an 80-degree field of view, and it films in 4K60. And it's got a gimbal built in hmm. so the the stabilization is better than anything you're going to see on any other action camera it's got a little bit tighter field of view and you still got that nice high resolution and uh capabilities for slow motion 
So the testing I've been doing with that so far, it's a little bit more difficult to use. Right? It's not like as, as bulletproof as like an action camera, but the footage you're able to get, I think, is definitely superior. So that's what I'm kind of leaning towards as a head cam is to be able to use that camera and then probably have one camera that's bow mounted and then one camera that is up in the tree, kind of on that utility strap facing down. Hmm. And that'll probably be the camera that I have my microphone plugged into. So I can get kind of a, not maybe necessarily a full shotgun mic, but maybe something that's close where I'm able to get a little bit more of the surrounding sounds. Yeah. So it'll be good enough to be able to get like the leaves crunching if a deer's walking in or that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably also still have a, a lav mic mm-hmm. for interview type stuff. And that uh, that Osmo also has some unique functionality in terms of being able to, since it has its mechanical gimbal, it's able to move itself. Hmm. You can actually like hook it up to the app, set the camera down, and then from a remote location, you can control where the camera is angled. You can do you know moving time lapses you can do <laughs> you can do active track so like you can be standing you know 15 yards away from the camera have it active track on you and then walk from one location to another and the camera will actually follow you it'll turn oh, by wow. itself so there's there's definitely some cool tech in that thing and you know there's some limitations in terms of what it's overall capable of it's not going to give you professional image quality or, or fantastic low light but that's kind of the direction that i've had it in if I'm able to get that type of system, that would be able to get me, you know, a couple of different decent views and be able to piece them together and still be able to tell a really good story. Yeah. And still always get the kill shot on film. Right. Man, that's awesome. That's, uh, that is like, uh, I don't know that I would have the, the, uh, mental aptitude to take care of all of that in a tree. <laughs> to make sure all that's running in a tree. Um, it's just, you know, dude, if you can pull that off, that'd be killer. I want, I would definitely want to see what happens with your, with your, your head camera, because that part, whenever I saw that the other day, I was like, man, I was like, that is a great idea. And I was like, I got to talk to him about that. Cause that's, I love filming my hunts. I love going back and rewatching, like just, you know, when, even if I'm not shooting anything, it's like just watching whenever I see deer, just kind of watching the videos of them, especially if it's bucks, I like to kind of go back and watch and see what they were doing and yep. stuff like that. Um, but I just kind of struggle with it. Cause it's just nine times out of 10. It's just, it's such a pain for me to do that. I'm like, ah, I'm just leaving the camera at home today. It's not even going to take it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll show you, I'll send you a text of, a YouTube video that I have unlisted right now, some of the sample footage from that Osmo out of head mount, I think you'll be pretty surprised. Sweet. Yeah. You'll definitely have to send me that. Cause I, if I can figure out a way to conveniently and easy, easily uh, pick up some good footage then I would totally be into doing something like that. Cause I'm going to Iowa next year and I definitely want to film my hunt in Iowa. So short of like finding a friend to tag along and hanging a tree with me for like two weeks, I'm probably going to be on the, uh, yeah. the self film trip, but yeah, well ease of use that Sony's going to be your, probably your best bet or, or something similar to it. Right, that Sony on like a Solvid head cam because mm-hmm. it's you don't have to worry about the thing like it's one button to turn it on. Mm-hmm. Um, Tacticam is kind of a similar thing. Just when you're using that as a head cam, since it is a tighter view, you have to be really critical in terms of what direction it's pointing. Whereas the Sony, since it's a wider field of view, mm-hmm. you got a little bit more wiggle room there, right. and you might not be cropped in as tight you're a lot less likely to actually miss the the thing you want to capture. Right. Yeah. So what are your, uh, I know you're working on the, on the camera piece that we just talked about. So what are your kind of handful of, uh, of hacks that you're working on or DIY things you're working on for this year, for this upcoming year? Yeah. So we talked about the filming setup. Uh, one thing I just did over like the last week is to try a different stick attachment method, uh, with using smaller amp steel rope, like, eighth inch am steel or 764 sam steel yeah. to be able to splice up a daisy chain to use a stick attachment 
as opposed to like a cam strap or as opposed to like a big piece of am steel for the rope mod. Um, and I'm actually going to be uploading a video on that in the next couple of days just to sort of compare that to everything else that I've tried. And apart from that, oh, uh, I'm building a teepee probably for us going out to Colorado next year. Oh, nice. I've been, I've been talking. I almost did it a couple of years ago. I bought the, all the materials and ended up not going through with it. Uh, but I've been talking with, with Carl Costa quite a bit, uh, who's now the um, chief designer at Tethered. Mm-hmm. And he's built a ton of them, and he has a ton of great experiences and notes and stuff like that. So I'm probably going to take the plunge and build one of those. That's awesome. A uh, stabilizer for my bow. So what I'll probably do for the compound, I made something that was just kind of like a simple proof of concept where you know, are you familiar with like familiar with the equalizer? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yep. Yeah, so I made something just kind of out of a hacked up old Alpine soft lock quiver that kind of did the job, um, and it actually worked pretty decent. I, I liked it, but what I did now is I'm making just a more streamlined version of it, mm-hmm. where I'm able to just carry three arrows, have them basically as streamlined as I can get it, and the exact right length that I want it with a piece of aluminum bar that i'll put stealth strips over the top of and i'll be able to use that i think as kind of my stabilizer and quiver when i go out to colorado this year that's pretty i cool. think i think in season for whitetails i might we'll see i might use more more of the, the longbow this year than i did last year but mm-hmm. we'll see nice so you have so you have a few projects in other words i'm, I'm interested to see how the uh, how the tp works out man that's cool yeah it's the uh, yeah i'm looking forward to it i'm not looking forward to sewing it that's gonna be a lot of work but i'm looking forward to using it yeah, sewing it is going to be it's going to be it's going to be way above my my thread injecting capability. Put it we'll put it that way. What a what material uh, material are you using for that? Is it are you using canvas or No, it'll be a still nylon. Okay. Interesting. And what so are it's, you, it's a lot lighter weight than canvas. Okay. And well, yeah, I guess so if you're going to be packing into into Colorado to hunt, you don't want to carry that. Um what are you using for your supports? There'll be a big just one center pole essentially. Okay. So there's a couple of different ways you could go about that. One would just be finding like a really large, like a small, like a big branch essentially, mm-hmm. which is probably like the least likely thing that I would do. Um, more likely they have a bunch of center poles for existing shelters. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's one company I think Seek Outside makes a carbon fiber one that's made for that type of shelter. Kafaru has an aluminum um, center pole. Uh, I think even Easton, you can buy segments of their 7075 T9 aluminum and be able to create your own hmm. center poles that are adjustable so those are all options and kind of the more the more popular things so with like a teepee style shelter you just need that one center pole and then you just stake around the corners right and then you well i'll probably have a stove to i might not make the stove i'll probably buy the stove but a titanium wood stove mm-hmm. that'll so there'll be a stove uh stove jack or a like jack for the stove to be able to exit the, the top of the shelter yep and then we'll be able to throw in some wood and be able to kind of you know dry our stuff out at night. Nice. Is that for a, an elk hunt, elk and muleys? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Nice. That'll be killer, man. So I'll, I'll be looking forward to seeing the uh, the videos of uh, of you one building that and then two living out of it. That'll be super cool. The uh, all right, man. So I've I've had you here about an hour. Uh, I want to be sensitive to your time. We're, we're here on the weekend weekend time, and I'm sure you have some other things you want to dive into. Maybe some other DIY projects you want to spend some some weekend time working on. But before I let you go, 
if you wouldn't mind, just give us a give us a story. You know, something that's memorable. It could be something that you know you got to kill on, or it could be just something where you learned a valuable lesson. But uh, the floor is yours. Sure. So, take it back a few years uh, on a hunt that I went on in northern Minnesota, in kind of a region where you're starting to get you're starting to transition to more of that uh, that boreal type forest where it's it's not farmland by any stretch of the means you got kind of got a combination of like big wood swamps and higher ground that's covered in like maples and aspens and, and that type of thing kind of just rolling terrain and the way we would typically hunt that during the rut is we would look for transition areas whether it's transition areas along the swamp or transition areas from kind of open areas to some of that high ground and the first weekend of this hunt, I remember it was just crazy windy, like sustained 20 to 30 mile an hour winds. And we all just went down low. Um, as close as we could get to the swamp, you just get thick into those evergreens to cut down on the wind. And we did see, you know, a fair amount of deer. Some were, you know, moderately sized, nothing huge. But then immediately after that, kind of the wind just dropped off and went back down to normal. And we we're still kind of hunting down those lower areas and started to see fewer and fewer deer. So I started moving out into the more open high ground area and trying, trying to pick up on some uh, areas where it's still close to the swamp, but places where I was able to see a little bit further into the woods. Once I made that move, I was able to see a few bucks moving up higher and higher on that, that open terrain. So then again, that same day I moved, got uh, closer to where I had seen deer moving earlier in the morning, set up, saw another deer moving even higher up in the elevation, got down, moved again. So it's like the second move that I've, <laughs> I've rehung that tree stand in the same day and ended up finding an area that was close to some evergreens and high ground, which is pretty rare to find in that, that type of habitat. So then I hunted there for the last night, ended up seeing like one smaller buck, but I was like, you know what? I'll just go right back here the, the next morning. And so that's what I did. And that, that next morning at like 10.30 a.m., I ended up shooting still the the largest buck that I've shot hmm. that came through that area. And and so kind of the lesson there was you know, that was one of the first major hunts where I was ultra mobile and just kind of on the fly, um, not getting glued to any particular spot based on things that I had seen in the past and just trying to stay as up-to-date as possible. And by following each of those individual deer that I had seen moving, I was able to eventually get to a spot that was primed for the the location of, you know, what the weather was was doing that particular day. Um, and for all I know, maybe there was a, a hot doe that had walked through there, you know, the day prior or something. But if I hadn't kind of taken the lessons from what I'd seen those deer doing previously, I wouldn't have known to move, um, or if I would have just stayed glued to the original spot where we saw all those deer moving in the the high wind areas, I may never have even seen that deer. So that was kind of a a big lesson for me early on in how effective mobile hunting and um, adapting on the fly can be. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a nice way to kind of go full circle in this podcast because we kind of started talking about started off talking about that mobile hunting and not being glued to a spot and you know reading sign and being trying to get on the most recent you know intel and and hunting that most you know or that hottest sign and. Um, having the confidence to kind of believe what you were seeing and make that move. That's cool, man. Yeah. It's always nice whenever you kind of do, when you follow the, uh, the rules, if you will, and then you get rewarded, you know what I mean? It's, there's plenty of times where we make moves and it just doesn't work out. It's always nice whenever the, 
when the deer also reads the script. But uh, before I let you go here, man, if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell everyone out there listening where they can find out more about you and catch some of your uh, some of your DIY hacks. Yeah, so you can find me by searching DIY Sportsman, either in Google or YouTube. You'll be able to find most of my content on YouTube, but then I'm also on Instagram and Facebook as well. And then I also have a podcast that I co-host with uh, Bobby Boswell on the Sportsman's Nation Network. So if you search the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, the whitetail themed one on any of your typical podcast listening apps, you'll be able to find that podcast as well. Awesome, man. Thanks for joining. Be sure to check out his uh, Garrett's places where he has all of his DIY information. The YouTube channel is invaluable, anyway, especially for anyone out there who's looking to you know change the gear and, and, and make some modifications themselves. Or if you're looking to get into saddle hunting, looking for climbing methods, I mean, you do a good job of testing just about any any and every opportunity you know, as, as far as gear goes and, and how to get into the woods, as well as all your, your hunting videos, too. So thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate you spending some time with me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I want to thank Garrett for joining. Be sure to check out the DIY Sportsman on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. I'll, of course, put the links to those places in the blog post show notes. But, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. We'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for us. And before we shut this thing down, we need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Skull Brew Coffee, Wicked Tree Gear, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Trophy Ridge, Ozonics, Obsession Bows, Glacier Coolers, Ramcat Broadheads, Trophy Taker Rests, and Dead Down Wind. And until next time, see you. Makes me proud, makes me steal. I could show you through the door. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.